0: Before we begin, if you want to join our growing group of supporters and give five, ten, or twenty dollars a month to help make the show even better, you can sign up to the Harder Reports Patreon right now and get exclusive access to full unedited interviews with guests. That's the Harder Reports Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Harder Report. And now, today's episode. Hello and welcome to The Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Matthew Klein, the author of the book Trade Wars Are Class Wars, How Rising Inequality Distorts the Global Economy and Threatens International Peace, which is available to purchase now. Matthew Klein, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: To begin with, it's probably best to start with for those who haven't yet had a chance to pick up your book. Could you give us an overview of the book and the core issues within it? Because that's a, a really strong statement there in the headline that trade wars are class wars.
1: That's right. And the essential st- thesis of the book is, in fact, in the title. We wanted to be as transparent about that as possible. and And the argument is that You know, most people think of trade conflicts between countries as being driven by, you know, geopolitics or national characters or, you know, incompatible interests, things like that. And and people often view, for example, the U.S.-China trade conflict. People view that through that lens. And our point is that's actually the really wrong way of thinking about it. That really what you want to understand is that the reason why the U.S. and China, there's no actual conflict between U.S. and China as countries. Rather, American workers have been harmed by Chinese government policies that also harm people in China. And, in fact, the reason why American workers have been harmed is precisely because those policies harm people in China. And, you know, we basically extend this logic and, and explain how it works through a variety of different situations. So it applies to Europe as well. And that's basically the argument of the book, that, you know, contrary to what people think that, you know, the global the, – Global prosperity is some sort of scarce resource we have to fight over that actually we can all be a lot better off. But unfortunately, we're not, because essentially the elites and and wealthy in various countries are pursuing a wide range of policies that harm the vast majority of the populations.
0: That issue of it being the elites versus the ordinary people, that class war element, is something that's often not focused on when we're discussing trade wars. They're often debated as these conflicts between different nations but you obviously see that as being something more intrinsic, that these trade wars and class wars, as you mentioned, are, are linked together. So how does that link so closely? Because for most people, they see them one being a domestic issue, one being an international
1: issue. That's a great question. And essentially, our sort of one of the fundamental points we make in the book is that whether we like it or not, we are all essentially part of one big global system that you can't cut yourself off from the rest of the world. And one of the many implications of that is that What seems like domestic policies in a particular society will have impacts and consequences for people far outside, whether or not that's intended. And so, for example, we can talk about things such as, you know, Chinese household registration system, which is purely from their perspective of domestic policy, you know, about limiting internal mobility within China. But there are a whole series of consequences of that that end up redounding to the way workers are paid in China, which has to do with how much they can afford to spend and the profitability of investments within Ch- in Chinese-based companies. And that ends up affecting people all over the rest of the world. And, you know, I think it's much more intuitive for people to understand how this logic applies outside of the economic sphere. So, for example, pollution. Right. It's something that we intuitively understand or at least increasingly understand that you can be a polluter in one country and the consequences of that can be somewhere else. You see it with, you know, with the way the oceans rise, for example. It affects people very differently depending on who's actually doing things. And so our point essentially is that the economy works that way as well. We're a global connected system, and it's very important to understand those linkages and to realize that, you know, ironically, a lot of what we think of as trade policy has very little to do with – sort of these big-picture trade problems that we discuss. And then a lot of things that we think of as being completely unrelated to trade policy actually have very significant consequences on on imports and exports and, and the debt that's associated with that.
0: When you're looking at what's going on in China in particular, one of the arguments as you highlight is that while living standards have been rising, Chinese workers are consuming too little. What are the key hurdles to overcoming that? Is that just a situation where those governments believe that's in their interest, whether that's misguided? Is it something to
1: do with changing the culture of the individuals around it? How
0: do we overcome that problem?
1: So I definitely don't think it's a cultural issue. So my co-author, Michael Pettis, is really like the China expert. He's been living in Beijing for almost 20 years, teaches at uh, Peking University. And one of the points that he makes that's really interesting is that if you look at the changes that that we suggest – in terms of sort of the the specific policies that the Chinese government currently imposes that restrict household spending, a lot of those recommendations we have are actually very similar to recommendations that the top officials of the Chinese Communist Party have made over the years. And the interesting question, of course, is then if that's the case, why has nothing changed? And, you know, that's where you get into the question of essentially sort of the political economy of all this, that, you know, China is an authoritarian system, but that doesn't mean that it's a, you know, one person at the top can just dictate what they want for everyone in a, in a country of 1.3 billion people. There is a, there is still politics within, you know, an authoritarian system and, you know, you have the the relationship between sort of provincial and local governments and the center is the one that's very contested, the way that state owned enterprises, they have a lot of, you know, independent autonomy as well. And so essentially what you have is a situation where even if people at the top recognize that there's a problem problems development model, and in fact they've been saying this for almost 15 years, that, the actual impediments to changing it are extremely high, and especially if there are other priorities that, you know, the people in Beijing the, the, at the very top need to sort of bargain with elites at, at, at other, you know, system within sort of the overall Chinese power structure. If it's not the top priority to fix this, which it clearly is not compared to other things, then it's not going to get changed. And so even though there have been a few reforms that essentially prevented the consumption share of GDP from falling, in other words, household, households basically it used to be they consumed sort of between 50 to 60% of what the Chinese economy produced, which was on the lower end but not crazily low. And that fell progressively basically ever since 1989 for reasons we talk about in the book, hitting bottom at around 35% which is extraordinarily low, and around 2010. And there have been a few changes since then that essentially prevented it from falling further, and it's been a very slight increase, but we're still talking about a, a consumption share of output below 40%, which is extraordinarily low. So in the United States or the U.K., we're talking more like 70%, which is much more normal. There's obviously ranges around this for different societies, but, but you, to get numbers that low, it's basically either tax havens, where GDP is essentially overstated because companies are, are moving things um, there that aren't really reflecting actual domestic production, or sort of oil sheikdoms where – there are these massive amounts of oil profits that are retained by just a you know small elites that are then used to buy things like London property or what have you. But you know those are very unusual exceptions for large diversified economies like China. It's it's unprecedented to see that. And the 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 big question you know as as you're saying why is that is that something that you know people at the top recognize is that you know, they want that? No, I don't think so. I think essentially, and we we trace this out in the book that there were a variety of policy choices made in the early 1990s in response to what happened in the 1980s that ended up producing this outcome. And even if those policies made sense within the context of the 1990s, you know, for a variety of reasons, you see this in other countries that have pursued this kind of development model, they tend to outlive their usefulness because you end up creating this sort of entrenched elite of people who benefit a lot from those policies, and then they end up blocking reform. And that's essentially what we've seen in China in the past 20 years.
0: That idea of political priority shaping the approach to this issue of inequality, whether that's in trade wars or whether in domestic policies, do you believe that that is something that spreads through then the wider political agenda of politicians? So The reason that they don't necessarily recognize this problem that you highlight of trade wars being elites versus ordinary rather than about competing countries is because it's in their nature politically to focus on pushing these policies that affect the elites, those in power, those who support those in power, rather than those at the lower end of the spectrum, essentially.
1: I think it could, that's definitely an element of it. I think it depends on the society, it depends on which politicians we're talking about. I think part of the problem in general is that, you know, we had to write a whole book to explain this because some of the mechanisms we describe are not intuitive. It's much more intuitive to think about basically the opposite of what we're suggesting. And so I think if you look at why, for example, in many cases it's center left parties in, in the US and Europe that ended up at various points in time Pursuing policies that made a lot of this worse, we talk about this a lot in, in the chapter we have in Germany and Europe. I really think it 's because there was an element to which th- those center left parties didn 't understand the dynamics that we were describing and that or you know some combination of that, and they felt that they were constrained i don 't think it 's really i mean if you look at other political forces it 's probably different so again, looking at sort of the German case the people who seem to be most supportive of the policies there that ended up creating trade conflicts between Germany and other countries were essentially sort of the prosperous southwest, and that's sort of the conservative heartland of Germany, and that's probably a different set of priorities. But I think it's it's not just that. I think it, it, you know the, the amount of – I mean, the optimistic interpretation which we have in our book is that because this stuff is complex and because it's not something that people understandably are thinking of normally in the way they craft their own domestic policies, there is scope for – you know, informing and then hopefully changing the way people think about this, and that it's not purely a situation of people deliberately, you know, taking measures to harm others. And that's the optimistic take. I'm not saying that it's true for everyone, but I think that's true for many uh, of the politicians and and other sort of, you know, business leaders as well, quite frankly, that have pursued these policies.
0: The most recent example of a failed trade war is obviously Donald Trump's attempts to have a trade war with China. It was something he made a very key element of his policy priorities – But it has been ultimately unsuccessful, and a lot of people believe it's backfired, causing more harm to those within his own country than it actually caused issues for in China. Looking at that specifically, why did that fail to achieve the aims? Is it just something went wrong there? Is it the case that, as you talk about, these trade wars just are inherently flawed to begin with?
1: So – there are people who've been studying the real ins and outs of you know the policymaking within the Trump administration and give you sort of more precise details on some of this. But as as a general point, kind of zooming out, I think the problem is that they didn't really have a sense of what it is that they wanted that would have actually been constructive. So for example, if you're if you're concerned with things such as intellectual property theft. You're not, that's not going to really move the needle on things that matter to the vast majority of Americans, quite frankly. Like, especially if some of the issue is that patents in the U.S. are too restrictive, then actually, you know, cracking down intellectual property theft could, could end up being a situation where you actually lower U.S. consumer welfare. But the other point is that if you look at what the way they, they structured their objectives, at least in sort of this phase one deal that is clearly blown up, it was clear, it was just a situation of asking the Chinese government to essentially push state-owned enterprises to buy more farm goods, buy more energy, and, and maybe buy some more manufactured products, although it was very unclear how they would accomplish that. And, you know, again, as, as we explained, if it's a global system, if Chinese total demand for those things does not increase, and there's no evidence that, would, that, that it would, and that certainly wasn't part of the deal, then what would have happened was essentially just China would have bought fewer things from other countries to buy more from the U.S., which ultimately would not have made the U.S. better off because those countries – or people in those countries, rather, the businesses and households and so forth would have had less income because they would have been selling less to China, and they would have had to end up spending less on goods and services elsewhere, mostly from their own country because trade is not that important for most countries, but also fewer imports from other countries. And eventually that would end up flowing back to the United States. So you might have to have a long chain of transactions to see that. But eventually, if China basically says we're going to stop buying soybeans from Brazil, we're going to buy more soybeans from America, for example, that's not going to actually benefit Americans unless the total amount of soybean demand increases, which it's not going to. That was never in the cards. And so that kind of thinking through, it doesn't really solve the problem. I I think we explicitly say this in in the book. You can have as many commitments as you want for buying aircraft or or farm products or what have you, but unless the overall nature of the Chinese economy changes – In which, and the problem being that workers are drastically underpaid relative to the value of what they produce, then you're still going to have a situation where China somewhere is going to be reducing global demand and harming others through its domestic policies. And that's eventually going to redound to not just the rest of the world, but to the United States as well.
0: If these trade wars are so flawed in this manner that you lay out, why do we see politicians not just on one side of the political spectrum – both sides of the political spectrum still attempting to push these forward and still thinking that there's potentially a win for them here. Is there a way for them to be successful here or are they just misguided every time that they keep?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it is, you know, what are the mechanisms at play? What are they actually trying to accomplish? I think one area, I mean, this is not something we talk about in the book, it's sort of, you know, A little different, but if you're using trade policy to specifically harm other countries rather than to improve your own situation, that potentially can be successful. I'm not saying that's something I endorse, but if if your goal is, is, for example, to prevent, um, you know, particular companies abroad from having access to certain technologies or things like that, then you could under, I mean, if that's your goal, that can be accomplished through certain kinds of trade policies, if it's coordinated, and so that can be one reason. But I think a lot of this is really just a lack of understanding of, of the mechanics here. That uh, essentially, you know, I mean, we talk about this in the book. You know, a tariff, if you if you make it more expensive to buy foreign goods relative to domestic goods than it was before. One of the consequences of that is it makes investment in your country relatively more attractive, and people are going to want to produce more things in your country. And that, might, that sounds good, right? But the flip side of this is that it will also, you know, mechanically as that occurs, it will increase the value of your currency. And so what you end up having happen is that the foreign good will be the same price it was before in, you know, dollar terms, for example. But your exporters, because the currency is more expensive, suddenly will be at a disadvantage. And so this is, a, this is actually a very standard sort of economic theory for people to look at this, that, that the impact of tariffs is basically to punish your exporters. And it's not even a function of whether foreign governments retaliate. It's just because of this exchange rate effect. And, you know, what, what can you do to, to change, you know, other people's behavior? Well, again, if you're trying to, like, redirect trade, from one country to another and you don't care about the overall balance and then putting things you know labor standards environmental standards that can that can be constructive, but it won't but again, as long as every country is connected to a global system, what you really would need to do is essentially convince people in the countries to change their domestic policies and through trade may or may not be able to I, I don't really see a lot of evidence that trade necessarily works that regardless you have some kind of like embargo which is extremely rare I mean you're talking about like you know essentially apartheid South Africa but that's not something that happens very often, and so that's I think you know, but again, I think it's just a lack of of understanding of these dynamics because they are unfortunately kind of complicated. And you know, again, we had to write a whole book to explain it. And that's that's sort of I think why politicians will naturally gravitate towards it because it seems intuitive, like it makes sense. And the fact that it doesn't work this way um, is more complicated, and you need to you know think about it a lot. Do
0: you see it as being sort of a uh case for why maybe in politics there needs to be more economic experts up in position of power rather than those who are trying to make political decisions?
1: Well, it's tricky because I mean one of the points we make in the book is that even among economists, a lot of people get this wrong. Not everyone, obviously. Um, you know, we cite a lot of research from other economists. We're not you know, claiming that we just kind of came up with this you know, out of nothing. But at the same time, there are a lot of people who ostensibly should know better who, who are wrong about certain things or thinking through these questions. So, Simply saying that we need to appeal, have more experts in charge is not, I think, going to be sufficient. It's also having, you know, the right experts in charge. And, uh, so that's, and at the same time, I mean, I think that quite frankly, if you're going to really move forward on this stuff, it, you know, if a lot of the problems are essentially political problems in terms of the distribution of income and spending power and the choices being made by businesses and governments in their society, then it does require a political solution, I think. And then, and then the idea that, you know, If technocrats around the world, you wouldn't necessarily, you know, be able to actually change or get really the results you want here. Because in many ways, you know, what you need is really a different political agenda. That political economy is sort of the key thing. So it's, you know, people should be better informed, certainly. But I'm not sure that changing, you know, who is making – the types of people making decisions in and of itself is going to be the solution.
0: Donald Trump won the election in 2016 by convincing Americans that he would fight for those who were, quote, left behind – And that's part of this element of trade wars. It's often this idea of fighting for the ordinary person in society. Do you think that people are still not wise to this essential failure of the trade war mechanism? Or do you think people are starting to wake up for it, particularly when you look at what's happened in America, that those individuals who Donald Trump won over with that sort of rhetoric aren't sticking by him in this election to the same extent so far, as polling suggests. So do you think people are becoming wise to it, or do you think there's still a long way for people to go to, to learn that this doesn't work?
1: That's an interesting question. I mean, in terms of the way the polling is right now in the United States, you know, there's obviously a lot of confounding factors between the, the coronavirus and the economic collapse associated with this. It. It's sort of tough to disentangle um, why people might have changed their minds on some questions. I, I think that to the specific point are people getting wise to it, that's possible i mean the the thing is that there was something that Trump hit on in two thousand and sixteen that was correct, which is that there were a lot of people who ended up being harmed and they ended up being harmed in part as a consequence of the fact that America participates in a you know the broader global economy now, the solution to that isn't to you know cut yourself off or do the specific things that were done, but you can understand why, like, given that other people had not really made that link and made that point explicit, why someone was able to get some, you know, why he was able to, you know, have some appeal. Because even if, you know, you, you know, getting, you know, the first part of the problem correct, even if the rest of it is wrong, is still superior from some perspective than, you know, completely missing that there is an issue. And, you know, I think what I'm encouraged by is that if you looked at, the various approaches among the leading Democratic uh, candidates during the primary. And in fact, what what Biden has been putting out recently is there seems to be a recognition of the fact that the previous policy regime was inadequate and that changes need to be made. And what's encouraging in particular is that in many ways, they're not advocating for the same thing that Trump has been doing, which is essentially just you know arbitrarily throwing on punitive tariffs, but also trying to come up with solutions to the overall broader problem, which is, a lack, uh, you know, sort of global underspending, and the problems that you know the fundamental economic structures of other societies can, paw, can, can pose um, for Americans and for for our allies.
0: One of the issues that talked about with the U.S. and its specific failings of what's going on here, and, and why it's very difficult for the U.S. to actually pull itself out of the issues that keep cropping up is because of the U.S. dollar status as the world's reserve currency. This was one of the assessments of it. The U.S. basically being unable to stop itself from running a trade deficit. Do you see that as being the case? And if so, is there an easy solution? Because it's not a simple step for the U.S. to no longer be the world's reserve currency. So how does it address that problem?
1: You're right. It is challenging. And the reason, to be clear, why it's challenging is because it's not something the U.S. chose. So if you go back to 1944 with the creation of, you know, there was an agreement negotiated during World War II at Bretton Woods in New Hampshire, and there was trying to create, you know, a post-war financial architecture that would prevent the recurrence of the Great Depression and, and, you know, all those good things. And one of the choices that was made there was – Explicitly placing the U.S. dollar at the center, the center of the global financial system, and so people, a lot of people, will sort of uncritically make the jump from that to now and say the reason why the dollar is so dominant in the global economy is because of that choice. And if only you know other governments stepped up, then we could you know remove the we could remove ourselves from the tyranny of the dollar. And this is something that keeps cropping out every few years, whether it's Europeans saying this or Chinese more recently saying this. But it's sort of an it's quite frankly an ignorant point of view because. That, was, that happened in 1944, but a lot of events intervened uh, in, the, you know, in between, and at this point, the only reason why the dollar is the dominant currency is because people outside the United States want it to be the dollar, want the dollar to be the dominant currency. They want to use the dollar for their own purposes. They want to save in dollars for their own purposes. It's nothing the U.S. does at all um, that really makes this the case, with one possible exception. The one thing the U.S. does is that we are relatively accommodating of foreign desires to put Um, their savings in dollars. And this isn't unique to the United States, by the way. So we focus on the United States because, you know, we're Americans and we're writing for, you know, primarily American audience. But quite frankly, all the Anglosphere economies, the UK, Australia, Canada, um, even New Zealand, basically have the same kind of situation, which is a a credible legal system, very open um, to foreign investors. And of course, because we use English and you know, elites everywhere else in the world also use English. It's very accessible. And so the combination of those forces means that all of these countries, proportionate to their economy, basically, it's the same sort of everywhere, are um, see these massive inflows in the rest of the world. The U.S., of course, is a much bigger economy than the rest of the sphere so that's why it looks like the dollar is the world's reserve currency and has this impact. But quite frankly, all of those other countries have a similar issue of lack of, you know, domestic control, and, and their currencies are also, you see them in, in foreign reserve portfolios and, and broadly um, attractive to foreign savers. And so... What can be done about it – I mean either you do something that's just self-harming, which is you make yourself a much less attractive place for people to put their money, but how you do that in a way without undermining you know, your own citizens is tricky. I mean you essentially the, the, the best approach, which again is, is still – I mean somewhat a destructive approach is essentially you basically just prevent foreigners from putting their money in. And there are ways of doing this that are better than others. I mean, you've seen in Australia and Canada and New Zealand um, have all put various limits or restrictions on foreign foreigners buying local housing. And that seems sort of like an obvious one, especially given what's happened in those countries with foreign demand for, for their housing markets and how that's affected. But that's only part of the solution. I mean, you could put, do something more comprehensive. I mean, other countries have various, uh, particularly emerging markets, but, you know, um, limitations on foreign investment or taxes on foreign investment. That's something actually that's been – proposed for the United States, and that could potentially um, be helpful. But ultimately, if you, even if you did that and it worked, it would still essentially – this excess savings that we talk about in the book would just go somewhere else. So it would help – so that would sort of narrowly solve the problem, but it wouldn't sort of solve the underlying issue. Um, so what would help? I mean, that's a tricky question. The alternative idea that had been presented at Bretton Woods in 1944 was by John Maynard Keynes, and he essentially said we should have a special currency called the Bancor – for settling international trade between countries. And and you could have the International Monetary Fund would be in charge of distributing. Out Bancor and every country would have you – know, governments essentially would be involved in settling trade payments and, you know, through the IMF. And it's a complicated system, I'm not going to go to it now, but essentially that would be an alternative. But how you set that up seems extremely complicated. It seems highly likely people would want to do that. Um, a multipolar system could potentially be good. I mean, Europe – the creation of the euro was supposed to sort of be a solution to this problem, but for a variety of reasons. It just did not work. I mean, it could still, but basically the choices of European governments basically prevented that from happening. But, I mean, the fundamental issue is others, for, for any kind of alternative currency regimes to be popular or to spreading the burden, other societies have to be willing to accept the costs even if those costs would be smaller because they're splitting it up among several societies, they have to be willing to accept the costs, and no other society seems to be willing to do that. And in fact, the only societies that have been willing to do it are the Anglosphere countries, and they seem increasingly less willing to do that and, and pushing back. So it, 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 you know, it's a good question of what can be done, and it doesn't seem like there's a really great answer. I think it ultimately has to be some kind of negotiation. It has to be, unfortunately, probably some threats um, from you know the anglo side of things, but I don't really have a great answer, you know, a neat answer to your question, because it is a challenging problem. It's something that it's a situation that evolved over quite a few decades, and you know moving in a different direction will be very tricky.
0: That idea of the international architecture, I know you mentioned it will be very difficult for that to be set up, but on a wider scale, do you see the solutions to the problems that you highlight in your book as being something that would be able to be done by countries on a country-by-country basis, or would it require that international cooperation, not necessarily on the level of an international arbiter or international organization that oversees this, but some sort of international cooperation? Is that what needs to occur here?
1: That's a good question, and I think the answer actually could be no, insofar as, you know, if we're just going to zoom out, the big problem that we've seen is that there isn't enough spending on goods and services Relative to the world's economy, the world economy's ability to produce those goods and services. And that creates a whole lot of problems, but the distribution of those problems has been very uneven, and that's essentially why we think of them as trade problems, even though it's really sort of a a bigger problem than that. And so insofar as the particular places that are underspending increase, you know, how much households and businesses and governments spend on goods and services and investment and all that stuff, that would solve – you know, that could essentially solve the problem. It doesn't, doesn't require coordination with the places that are sort of spending more or less what they should be. And you know, the question is, you know, how do you get those countries to do that? I mean, in theory, they could just appeal to their own interests, right? I mean, we talk about in, in Europe, for example, it's a very clear case where it's a democracy, so essentially the government should be accountable to what people want there. And there's also a very clear problem that's been going on at this point for over 10 years of – not enough consumption, not enough investment. So everyone in Europe would be better off by simply fixing this problem internally, focusing purely on their own needs and and, and uh, desires. And that would have very positive benefits for the rest of the world automatically. Same thing with China. China is a different situation in terms of its politics and specific problems of their economy. But, again, the things that could and should be done in China, you don't have to make any appeal to, you know, what's good for the United States in this continent. And, in fact, you could argue that actually – framing it as what's good for the United States might actually make it less likely for these things to happen. I think, you know, the extent that these arguments have been going on for, you know, in various forms for several decades, um, that does actually might make it unhelpful. So the question, though, is, you know, what would cause changes in European politics or Chinese politics or some other countries that we, we didn't really talk about as much because, you know, every country is different. We focus on, on those two societies. But, you know, I don't – I don't know, quite frankly, what prompts it. But I think in many ways, it's really how to get them to, you know, make the changes internally, and that will end up fixing the global problem.
0: We're talking there about the international cooperation or international relations and how that weighs in on all of this. Part of the book's argument that is made is this warning that, quote, the danger is a repetition of the 1930s when a breakdown of the international economic and financial order undermined democracy and encouraged virulent nationalism. Do you see that as being a risk of the the failures here? Do you fear that occurring as suggested?
1: Yes, absolutely, definitely uh, something that we're concerned about. I mean, it, you know, in, in a certain sense, it's already started, right? I mean, the the fact that people such as Donald Trump were able to find this mass appeal and get elected, and and by the way, like he's not unique in that regard. Um, you know, obviously, like in the United States, it's sort of the one you know, instance that we focus on most, you know, in terms of our own heads, not necessarily not in the book, but I mean um, but you know it, it certainly is plausible that if you have the global economy being perpetually weak, or quite frankly much weaker, and if you have a situation where it seems as if it's being caused by people in foreign countries, because to a certain extent it is, although it's not just people in general, it's specific people in foreign countries. And to the extent that, that breaks down the economic ties that bind people together for various reasons in terms of trade and finance you can see why that would certainly make the international system a lot more unstable. I mean, is it automatically going to lead to interstate violence? I mean, no, not automatically, but it certainly removes a lot of the goodwill that might prevent those kinds of things. And you can, I mean, actually, in some ways, the the situation that worries me the most and sort of been sort of a slow burn worry for a long time is in Europe. I mean, I don't think there's going to be a shooting war in Europe anytime soon, you know, within the EU. I mean, um, but You know, the amount of goodwill has just been completely obliterated by the handling of the financial crisis and the euro crisis and what that means. And even quite frankly, now, and you see the negotiations between, you know, the Netherlands on one side and, you know, basically not wanting to give the government of Italy any money, even though, you know, thousands of people died there and their economy just collapsed as a consequence. I mean, that can't be good for you know, the overall politics of the continent, the relationships there. And, and, you know, you can see that spreading globally and how that's, it seems like, you know, as we said, threatens international peace. It's in the, you know, it's, it's definitely a problem and something, something to worry about. If if you're thinking, why does any of this matter, aside from sort of the obvious reasons of we're all going to be poor, et cetera, et cetera, this is the thing, I think sort of the real thing to be worried about is that, you know, poverty and insecurity and, you know, that just makes everyone much more hostile and, you know, That could lead to violence and all sorts of really terrible things we want to avoid.
0: Finally, to to round out the interview, we talked about the issues that are discussed in the book and and the issues that exist when it comes to this problem of trade wars. But what do you hope people who read this will take away
1: from this book? So I said at the beginning, I think probably the most important point is that global prosperity is not a scarce resource. One country – can do well without having to harm other countries. In fact, it's more likely that we can all do well together than that some will do well at the other's expense. And so that, I think, should really be the way we think about these issues of the global economy, that ultimately it is a connected global system. We can all be more prosperous and better off together, that trying to live in a zero-sum world of taking from one to another is not going to be successful, and that the big problem we've had isn't that one society is taking advantage of another, but that various societies have been producing less than they should have, consuming less than they should have, and that living standards have been unreasonably depressed because business elites and and government officials have decided for various reasons that regular people shouldn't be able to spend as much as they are producing, and that's just been uh, led to all sorts of problems for people all over the world.
0: Matthew Klein, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: That was Matthew Klein, the author of the book, Trade Wars Are Class Wars, How Rising Inequality Distorts the Global Economy and Threatens International Peace, which is available to purchase now. You can find out more about him and his book on Twitter at M underscore C and his co-author, Michael Paitis at Michael X. That's all for today's episode. What did you think about the interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe, or recommend this podcast by submitting a review online and sharing it with friends and family. Thank you to this month's supporters on Patreon, Carolyn, Colin, Ibalashnikov, Janet, Jesse, Merrily, and Nikki, who helped to make this show even better. Until next time, goodbye.